Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 434. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Jim Knight. Jim is a musician, expert in training and development, entrepreneur, renowned keynote speaker, podcaster, and a best-selling author. He founded, with Brant Manswar, Bookstar PR, a disruptive digital marketing agency for authors. In his speeches and work at Night Speaker, Jim teaches organizations of all sizes how to attain their own rock star status. He's the best-selling author of Culture That Rocks, How to Revolutionize Your Company's Culture, now in its second edition, which Entrepreneur Magazine listed as one of the top five books that will transform your business. Jim's new book out in May 2021 is Leadership That Rocks, Take Your Brand's Culture to 11 and Amp Up Results, which became an Amazon number one bestseller. In this conversation with Jim, we discuss his powerful and transformative experience as head of global training at Hard Rock International. We explore the fascinating and inspirational examples coming from rock stars, as well as the core ingredients that go into making a successful business culture, rock star leadership, and a fulfilling life a powerful and energetic conversation. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show with Jim. Jim Knight, uh, if, if uh, people were able to view you, they would have their eyes wide open. Let us make our eyes wide open about how leadership can rock. In your own words, Jim. Who you, who you be? You know, I, uh, I aspired to be a professional musician at one time. And while I was at college, I discovered to do that, you actually had to be good. Uh, <laughs> so I changed careers. I became a middle school teacher. Uh, my claim to fame really is 21 years running training and development for Hard Rock International, which I absolutely loved. But about a decade ago, I just decided I want a louder voice in the world. And now I'm a keynote speaker and an author and a podcaster and a part-time book marketer. So I try and cram all those things into my entrepreneurship life. So what's lovely about that is that there does seem to be a theme in your life, uh, mm -hmm. certainly in the professional space. And I was wondering at what point you might have crystallized what has or is your purpose, Jim. Yeah, you know, I just want to do my level best to try and amp people's lives up. And some of it's personal, but, uh, you know, it's probably been more on the professional side more than anything else. Like I said, I thought I was going to be a musician. And I do, honestly, mentor, I get a chance to pull all those levers. I still feel like I've got the music background. I've got that education background. And of course, just my two, almost two and a half decades in hospitality, I pull that lever as well. So all of it works for me now. So when I'm on stage or if I'm writing something, I'm constantly thinking of the end user. How is this going to serve them? And so there's a level of uh, edutainment, as you would probably imagine, especially in the rock and roll world. You know, it's not just about the content itself. I think you used to could rely on that. Now there's a little bit of some showmanship as well. So I try and uh, walk the line for both of those. It's beautiful. Well, because Hard Rock Cafe, of course, has a link with music. And, Does. And then, but then you go into education and, and you, you obviously excelled at education. And I feel like that's the, the rock, <laughs> to use another term, the, 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 the edifice, the rock of your edifice, uh, 
uh, that really helped you define who you were. Can you describe, and you do talk about that in your, in your book, Leadership That Rocks, how do you reconcile or find how education, that educational piece yeah. was so important? Well, I mean, certainly from my background as a middle school teacher helped. I mean, it started there. I love to teach, whether it's one-on-one or with a group. Certainly now I do it with large, much bigger groups. But I think even, again, those, those 21 years at Hard Rock, you know, when you become a trainer, when you become head of training, when you're traveling around the world, going to some country that they know the logo, they're not exactly sure what the heck it is. Is it a restaurant? Is it a bar? Is it a retail store? And it's all of those things. But to take some human on the other side of the planet who doesn't know anything about the brand, and then when you leave there three, four, five weeks, and it's an active business that's making millions in some cases, and and, and we've created the, these rock and rollers, the, these hard rockers, we call, that then help perpetuate the brand. It just, it, it just got me so excited. And again, in the summertime, when you're a school teacher, there's no money to be made. You're not, you're not working. You had to take a summer job. That's actually how I fell into hard rock. But I just fell in love with the culture. To be more specific, I fell in love with the people that were in the culture. So they were a little bit more open-minded, I would say, to learning something that would be a little bit different, you know, because rock and roll is such a nebulous esoteric concept anyway we operated in the gray quite a bit but it gave me so much more leeway it was an it was an unbelievable palette with which to paint and so when you can be a little bit more irreverent and unpredictable i think it helped mold me to actually the type of teacher that i am now it reminds me a little bit of the southwest airlines where they allow the um, flight attendants to sing occasionally or rap the the guidelines yeah, and, and at Hard Rock, I assume that was really also somehow part of the culture, the link with music. You, they would allow for that easily. But yet, there can always be questions of egos and, oh, he's a little bit too loud for my liking. You know, I'm the boss. You know, he's not reverent enough. How did, how did that work out? Did that also come up in your experience? Well, I would say it, it evolved over time, but, you know, it's always been where, you know, it, it's called the hard rock, you know, and people, we would sort of jokingly say that if a guest even said it's a little bit loud, can you turn down the music? We would have some ego. We would be a little bit cocky and say, hey, listen, it's called hard rock. We're going to turn it up. But the reality is you really do have to cater to the guest, to the customer. And so as long as music for us wasn't in the background, it was in the foreground, it was part of the experience. And believe it or not, there's an actual art form to it. In that brand, whether you're in a hotel, casino, cafe, the goal should be, and I'll use the cafes probably is the easiest one to think about. If you and I were sitting at a table having a conversation, as long as we could comfortably hear the music and have a conversation, but I can't hear the other people next to me, it's the perfect sweet spot. If I can hear other conversations, we got to turn the music up. And as a manager, that's what we're doing all day long. If there's hardly anybody in the building, you're turning it down. If it's full, you're cranking it up. So it, it definitely was a part of it from, from a, a, a practical logistical standpoint. But then the people that you hire, you know, we had to go out of our way to make sure that we had some unique characters because one, I'm just a big believer that unique people create unique experiences. And where do you think you're going to get them is, people that probably have a passion for something for us it just happened to be rock and roll and it happened to be music so did a, an occasional really smart competent server bartender housekeeper get by and they just had the skills and they didn't love music sure but for the most part 
they either really wanted to be immersed in the spirit of rock and roll or, or they just, they couldn't get the gig. We needed that to be a part of the experience. So in, in the realm of serendipity, I, I recorded exactly today, but it will be delivered, of course, published at another time, another interview with the head of marketing of a brewery called hmm. Beavertown. And the, the marketing there uh, the, has, starts with almost a tagline, which is think like a band, not like a brand. And uh, they, they, when they do their interviews, they actually have the music high up, amped up to a little bit uncomfortable level. And if you're uncomfortable with that, then you're not for us. Yeah. And, and then I said, well, then you must have a specific music taste because if you're starting to play some whiny music that I really hate and it gets to my nerves, then, then clearly there has to be also music. He says, uh, -uh. in fact, we played lots of different music. The thing that linked the music was the political stance. Mm. If they had a specific type of politics to them, that's what, what allowed us to amp it up. So there's, there's clearly a, 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 something within the music business that when you're in it, you know it. Yeah. But when yeah. you're not, it's sort of a harder thing. So how do you persuade people to al allow to think more like a band or yeah. a rock and roll person than a regular business person? Well, first off, I, I now try and use that again as another lever for when I'm trying to explain things to, let's say, a corporate audience, because I do think uh, not just that I love using some music orientation in the stuff that I do. I think that there's a lot to be learned about teams and bands. So I do a ton of band and brand analogies. I actually have topics in my book specifically about that, because I think for the most part, people like music. They might not like my genre or my type of rock and roll, but I think most people like music and they can make those analogies. I can help them connect the dots. When we were interviewing people for the same, probably the same mentality that you're talking about with your friend who started the brewery, we would ask questions. Of course, the typical HR stuff that would be open-ended, very behavioral-based type stuff, of course. But we would throw in things like, what type of music do you like? What's your favorite artist? What was your first concert? What was your last concert? Like, like these weren't throwaways. I think some people sort of use that to, to have some yuck yucks during the interview. This was a very specific reason why we did. Can they think on their feet? Are they a fan of music? Have they ever even been to a concert before? Now, I'm not saying that it would absolutely uh, knock them out of the, the opportunity, but it certainly would help in our decision-making. And although when I was working at Hard Rock, we were very, I would say agnostic when it came to politics or religion, because if you think about it, I mean, going all the way back to the seventies, when they started people that had tattoos and body piercings and colored hair and were gay and lesbian. And um, like we had all kinds, we had everybody, all types on the rainbow spectrum were working for the brand. And there weren't a lot of companies that were doing that, not in corporate UK or corporate us. That's for sure. It, it became that very quickly in a lot of places, but, I think because we sort of took that stance, we've been able to, to alter and affect some of the other companies out there. So I know I said a lot there, but I think when we're talking to people, music has to be a part of the experience. And if they can't even bring themselves to talk about it, or like in your friend's instance, if they couldn't have a conversation because the music was too loud, they're going to really struggle working in a day-to-day -day operations where we spend the majority of our lives anyway. So it helped us in our decision-making. And I don't care if they said something like, you know, 
uh, Barry Manilow or if they picked country music or whatever, it doesn't matter to me. Can they answer those three or four questions and, and be confident and passionate about it? That meant something to us. Yeah, you, you mentioned one of the, um, the leadership qualities that you respected or liked in some guy you worked with um, called Ken uh, about quiet confidence. Yeah. And that, that seems like a, a lovely characteristic to have. It's not arrogant, but, you know, I can stand up for what I believe. Yeah. You know, and I think about that mentality. I've met some people in my lifetime that were great leaders in the company that did have that quiet confidence. They, they were a little bit more humble, I would say, than somebody else. Because when you get into hospitality, in particular, rock and roll, and you're crushing it, you're making millions. When you open the door, there's a line of people there. When you're closing at the end of the day, there are still people there. Like we get cocky very, very quickly. Now, this is back in the early 90s. I know a lot of people that would just love to bring the swagger every day. Like they're okay with bringing the thunder and that's fine. And there are times to do that, but there are other times when it's cool to be quiet and subtle and maybe not talk as much, maybe listen to whether it's a team member or whether it's a guest, but at some point when you do talk, when you've got that quiet confidence, people pay attention to you. So I think you can go back and forth between being humble and, and bringing it when you need to. Yeah, and, and you, you put that very much in your book in the context of humility. Yeah. And of course, I subscribe to that thought. The, the, actually, what I feel is that when you're quietly confident, you, the quiet is the interesting thing. Because when you're confident, you don't actually feel like you need to spray and play a million things. You just, you're there to listen. You're grounded and... And, and present while you're yeah. listening. Yeah, you know, and this goes back to the educational piece that you were talking about earlier. If you think about the different types of communication, right? We have had a lot of education, a lot of training on how to write. All of us have probably had some type of training education on how to speak. We've gone to some speaking classes, whether you did it in high school or university or whatever. Where are the classes in listening? Like nobody teaches you how to do that. You either got it from your parents or you went to some class. It was either some, I don't know, Tony Robbins or Stephen Covey or something where you were, you actually had to do that. And by that point, you're, you're an adult. Like you learned everything. I'm a huge fan of learned behavior. You learn everything from your parents, from religion, from school, from the playground, from lack of any of that. But by the time I get to be an adult, I'm 19, 20, 21 years old. And I want a job. If my natural disposition isn't to listen to people or look them in the eye or smile or have a great personality. I, I can't train you to do that. Either have it or you don't. You have to actively go out and look for it. And so I think your point is to, to be humble, it does require some smart, some thinking. Hopefully you've got some great, some, some great background, some great education. Somebody's helped you along the way. But I'm just a huge believer that every once in a while, when there are things, especially if there's something with some emotional attachment, if somebody on the other side of a point of view is just so passionate, why not you as the listener, just shut your yapper for a while, listen to them because you know what? They might actually have a great point. You might actually change your opinion because of what they said. So it's just, I don't think this happens very often in today's society. I think it's, I'm looking for the psychological break so I can jump in to make my point and I need to be as loud and grandiose and over the top to make my opinion heard. And I just think the really awesome leaders are the ones that don't need to do that. Every once in a while, maybe you need to inspire the troops. You got to motivate them. But in general, just be quiet. 
just listen to the other person. And when you speak, they'll, they'll, you'll have a lot more credibility for what you're saying. It'll, it'll bring a little bit more heft, if you will. Mm. Gravitas. Um, it makes me think of a conversation I had at lunch recently with a friend, Ollie, who said that uh, maybe we should change the way we teach kids. And, and his idea was that every kid should learn a little bit of like 10 or 20 languages, how yeah. that would shift our perspective. So we should have one class on learning a little bit of every language, one class on listening. And the one I would add is one class on sleep. Yeah, You learn everything about how to do cognitive waking stuff, but nothing about the third that actually completely changes the way we live our yes. two thirds of the day. So there, there we have a new curriculum, Jim. Um, going, back to, going back to education. Yeah. So most leaders, um, of all, everybody has been through education. So everybody has an opinion on education. However, I don't think that much education is done well. And certainly when it gets to learning for development, it just feels so dry and KPI'd and, and way, way too ineffective. What you say would be in, in your so many years of experience in training mostly adults in the case of hard rock. Yeah. Uh, what, what makes good for good education? Well, I start with early education, but you can go all the way up to when you actually are getting some training in a company. And quite honestly, the majority of it in just about everything I've seen is garbage. And first off, I'm a, you know, I'm a product of public education. I taught in the public school system, but uh, two of my three kids, we homeschooled 100% all the way through to the time they got out of high school. Um, so I've seen private, I've seen charter, I've seen all the different variations. And you know, the, the question that you asked mentor, I think about even in, during the pandemic, when everybody, for the most part, I know it was here in North America, but all over the world, a lot of them were having to do virtual school, virtual education. And the teachers that were great became even better. Like they were able to translate that from a distance. The ones that were absolute crap, they were exposed. They were unmasked. That they really weren't that great of a trader because a trainer because they were they they were reading from out of the manual. They were just droning on and on. And imagine if you're a six, seven, eight year old and you're trying to watch a video for hours at a time. It's just not going to work. So, I do believe that there's got to be an overhaul, not just in the delivery, although that's big on my scope. I think even in the content, I think you make an excellent point. I think for the majority of countries, particularly, again, I have to point, you know, my, my finger at the U.S. and say they are teaching to the test that somehow along the way we've sort of been ingrained that this is what we need to do, that this is important for us to get to the next level, get a job or, or make your way through life. When in fact, we ought to be teaching a whole lot more social skills, life skills, like what you just talked about. And so I, I do think you've got to focus on some of the basics, but there's a totally different way you could do it. Um, and I think the more systems that you put in place and, oh, by the way, go get an awesome teacher on top of that, then it's going to be a fantastic confluence of events. At the very least, though, even if you had a eh, mediocre teacher, if I had a system in place that said, this is what we want you to teach, you would almost fake people into teaching some pretty good education. So I think the same thing could be said for when you start to get into a job. And so, listen, I made my bones the, the way that I had any type of a career that I do right now. 
is because I overhauled all of the training at Hard Rock. I got rid of every physical manual. I turned them into comic books. I got rid of as many words as possible. I thought, geez, can I help people that have dyslexia or English as a second language? I mean, the, the Hard Rock operates in 75, 80 countries now. We didn't hardly have to translate anything because people got an idea of exactly what it was because of a series of pictures. So I think when you get to that point, and I'm just talking about physical materials. Now you start thinking about e-learning and video and all the cool, fun things to make it interesting for the end user. The goal is to get that stickiness, to get their, you know, to get them to remember the information, to increase their retention skills. And so I think the whole thing could be overhauled. And honestly, if I wasn't doing what I'm doing, doing right now, I would probably do that. I would probably get into somehow into public education to see, could I get in there like a bull in a china shop and completely disrupt the entire market and just do it a different way? I think we would be better served. Somebody's got to do that. I'm waiting for that to happen. Well, we, we um, in uh, France, where it's obviously an important part of the public um, expenditures, we, we call it the mammoth, uh, as mm. in the sort of you know, near, nearby dinosaur extinct it's just huge doesn't move and we so set in our ways but bringing in that emotion of course that there's so many different learning styles there's so many other ways to play to our emotions and get that engagement but it does require such a mindset and and, and i feel like it, it rhythms to use another musical expression throughout your book this whole idea of being educational and learning how to, to, to adapt to your audience. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about was the challenge or the strength of using what you did in education to drive the brand of Hard Rock. At some level, I got the feeling that you were creating or you know, making live the brand through education. Is that what you felt? And would you, should you say that other companies should be thinking about this differently as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I had a I had a wonderful, awesome time there, and I had a pretty influential part to play. You know, I started off as a host. My hair did not go up and and it's spiky like people, if they could see me now, would envision my hair. You go back fifteen years ago, I had long hair. I could sit on my hair. It was the the typical mullet. I loved working for a brand that allowed me to be and say and do whatever I wanted to. But there were actual really good business fundamentals in there. And although I loved my trainers, I loved what we did. It was an exciting time when the brand was growing in the early 90s. My role, taking that educational background, was could I apply the concepts that, that I loved from my most interesting teachers that got me out of the classroom, made it more visual, made it more experiential? Could I do that in a big, huge behemoth brand? To be honest, I started with one. I, I worked in the Orlando Hard Rock, which was the busiest restaurant in the world, do, you know, pushing about seven, 8,000 people a day through that thing. And that's fun and your skills get sharp. But eventually when all of the managers in the entire world, no matter where there was a Hard Rock, they all got trained in Orlando. So instead of my five, six, you know, shifts being a host, I was probably a teacher, a trainer, once again, three or four of those. So I started to impart as much of that irreverent, unpredictable, different way of thinking to every future general manager to at least stop the bleeding, knowing that they were going to go and hire another 500 people somewhere else. So my role really, especially when I became head of training, head of global training, my team of nine were fantastic. We actually branded ourselves the School of Hard Rocks. 
It was very academic in nature. Our corporate university had three different conference levels, but everything from print, video, e-learning, we won so many different awards, tele awards, Brandon Hall awards for all of those different areas. So I felt like, and which was probably another reason, by the way, that I left, I thought, what else can we do here? I love that we were able to, to make a difference in, in a brand that was probably in the top 10 of all brands. Any health study that I ever saw, people knew the logo. What else could I do? I'm not sure I could even go work for another company, which is why I'm an entrepreneur now. But yes, to answer your question, my goal, I think, was to take that ripple effect, see how far I could push it as far as I could. And then when I got it to the point that I thought, I'm as far as I can go. Let me step out of the way and let somebody else perpetuate the thing. And let me see if I can't do it with a louder voice on a bigger stage with other industries like banking, like insurance, like real estate, like funeral directors. Like these are some of my biggest clients now. And you would not know that by thinking the hard rock guy with the crazy hair. Yeah. I think everybody could be better served by having better education, at least from a training standpoint internally. And I just think that resonates ultimately to the end user, to the customer, to the guest. I think it does translate into better sales and your brand gets to stick around a little bit longer. Well, you know, as I've written and you say, ultimately as people first. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present if you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. And, uh, and, and, and Inside Out is the model that I talk about. And the interesting parallel is uh, with your hard rock story is when I was working at Redken, the hair dresser brand, where we spent about 12 at the time, 12, 13% of our revenues on education which turned yeah. out to be a whole lot of money because we were doing 350 or so million at the time. And, and then with that, we, I really feel that that was our marketing. We were yeah. creating the brand through the people who were delivering the experience to the customers, in this case, hairdressers. And then as that then moved out, the hairdressers were then touching customers, but we didn't really go that far. We, that was the, the strength of what we wanted to do, the, the concentrate went all the way out to the hairdresser. And then we let the, the rest of the brand come from the hairdresser at, at, the, at the far end of it. So that is a funny part. So I wanted to, um, amongst I, I other wish, things. I will say this, I wish Go. I had that budget. We, I did not have that budget. I probably had less than a half a percent to do what we could do. And I'm with you. I mean, you, you look at where all the money was in operations and marketing, yeah. but imagine how bad it would be. Somebody spending millions of dollars to, to broadcast out to the customer only to put them into an environment where it wasn't exactly what you said it was on the billboard or the commercial, yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. So if it wasn't done through the employee, we would have wasted a lot of money. So I wish I would have had that budget. <laughs> I would have, yeah, well, I would have gotten to, to more people. To, to be put it in context, the average in the industry was three and a half percent. Because yeah, yes. you're, you're, deal, you're dealing with stuff with health and safety and you can't burn people's hair or scalps. And so there were some things that had to be done. So, 
we're, we've been talking about the leadership that rocks and, and the influence of music. I don't know about you, but I certainly also have an image of rock and roll stars as prima donnas, assholes, and not likable people. I have certain images like that that break up after a few years in this huge egotistical spat. Um, so what I was going to ask you was, you know, how, how do you take the good sides out of rock and roll artists in terms of leadership? Yeah. Well, first off, uh, rock stars come with baggage. And so you, you do, there is something about that. And, and I've thought about this quite a bit over the years, the, all the ones that I can really think of that really made a difference in people's lives. People were coming in for a burger or t-shirt or a hotel stay or whatever. And the experience was completely blown away. Like they, whatever individual, whatever hard rocker they came into contact with, if there was somebody who went above and beyond and just rocked their face off, they remember that forever. And that's what made the experience. It wasn't the things or the stuff or whatever. It was the person. So I do know that when you get into this world of rock and roll, yeah, you know what? They're, they're going to speak their mind. They're going to expect certain things. They're, they want to be on a first name basis with the boss. They want to be able to say something and not have a fear of something happen to them. So yes, uh, unique people, again, create unique experiences, but you're going to have to deal with that. And I would I guess part of it would have been from a leadership standpoint, you've got to teach leaders to be accepting of that. You've got to go, what would you rather have? You want uh, you know, a, a couple, maybe it wasn't the whole entire group because we needed some soldiers who were just doing the work, I get that. But you needed people that would go outside of the box that could do something, that could look somebody in the eye very quickly at a, at a glance, go, this is what it's gonna require to rock this person's world. Read the guest, seize the moment, personalize that experience to absolutely crush the moment. Do you have people who can do that? I'd rather have three, four, five of those that I go, oh man, I'm going to have to work with them a little bit because they're, they're a little bit different than everybody else. Or do you want a hundred people working on a shift of automatons that you have to push uphill to do anything exciting for the customer? So if you put it in terms of, do you want to be ensconced in mediocrity and like everybody else? Because then all it takes is somebody to come plant themselves across the street, do the same thing at a cheaper price. And, you know, you, you start to point to a date on the calendar when you're going to go out of business in this industry. And I would say almost every industry. Now, the name of the game is how do you differentiate yourself? And you can be the first to market. You can hang your hat on the product. You can focus on the environment, but at the end of the day, you said it best mentor. It is about the people. If I get that part right and knowing full well that I'm going to hire some rock and rollers, and they're gonna be a pain in the ass, but the reality is they're gonna bring something spectacular. I'd rather deal with that than deal with lackadaisical performance that doesn't get me anywhere. I, I just get into a sea of sameness that ultimately puts a nail in my coffin. So I wanted to kind of pollinate uh, out as my mind goes with your podcast, Thoughts That Rock, that you yeah. do with Brandt. And I think it was your last guest, Tom Peters, and there were two numbers that really stuck, stuck out for me. The first was 37. 37 seconds that a doctor delivering bad news, if they look you square in the eye, yeah, it brings down all the costs, all the stuff. And, and, and I think that within that 37 seconds, first of all, I'm thinking you're seeing into the soul of the person. Mm -hmm. you, yeah. There's a, there's a level of quiet confidence in that regard but there's a level of deep humanity that has to be transmitted. Is that what you took out of that? 
I did. And, uh, you know, Tom Peters, as I mentioned on that episode, was just one of my literary heroes. He's the whole reason I actually wrote my first book. Um, to have him on was just pure joy for me. And to hear him talk about some of those things. I mean, we did get into some behavioral-based stuff and we hit on some of his service excellence things, but he was really talking about extreme humanism. That was his last book and what he really focuses on. And to have that number sort of stuck out there and think, you know how long 37 seconds is? Like try and be quiet for 37 seconds. Oh my gosh. It's super tough, but also imagine a doctor delivering information like that with which something very raw and very relevant right now because I just lost my father and I dealt with a lot of sure. different doctors and nurses. I'm not sure one of them sat there and talked to me for 37 seconds. Now they maybe came and went, they maybe quipped something and came back. Maybe there was a conversation where we were talking, but there was not a ton of eye contact. 37 seconds is a long time, but if somebody would have done that, there probably would have been a lot more trust and credibility. Not that there wasn't, but there, there were people that have worse situations than uh, than I just had so I'm yeah, with you well, on that yeah my sister's a doctor her husband as well and 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 inevitably as you get older you do visit doctors and it's rare to have somebody looks you in the eye and I think it's also appropriate in the business world when you're delivering bad news to hey listen I've got to fire you Jim but yeah. you're looking up you're you're looking at your shoes you're 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 not paying attention I'm not paying attention to you that's just, that's poor. Yeah. Yeah. And again, this is probably part of the education. One of the things that we got a chance to do in our three conference series, our corporate university, when I was working for the brand was teaching skills like that, not just interviewing, not just retaining people, not handling, you know, guest complaints. Like we did all those practical, tactical things, which by the way, are skill sets. The more that you do it, the more repetition, the better you're going to get. And the whole reason you do it at a conference and do role play and practice is we don't want to practice on the employees or the guests. So it's cool to do things like that. And part of it was one of the worst things you have to do is take somebody's job away from them. And, but you can do it in a very humane way. It, it started a whole lot earlier. If you're not managing through threats and punishment and fear, but you truly love people, you want to be around them. People know when they're getting let go, like they fired themselves. And I have had on a couple of occasions, it's very rare, but every once in a while, I've let somebody go and they've stood up and extended their hand and said, thank you so much. You did everything that you could. It was my fault. I'm the one who screwed this thing up. When that happens, you feel so much better that you did everything that you possibly could and you feel good about the experience. But I think that eye contact and getting people to feel uncomfortable in the practice session so that they can feel very comfortable, not that it, it shouldn't be fun. It shouldn't be fun at all. Like you shouldn't be awesome at firing people. That's a whole different route cause right but i think if you have to do it you can do it with a little bit of humility and some grace and um and i think that makes you a better leader i think you get stronger because of that so the second number that uh, i hung my hat on was a hundred dollars where tom peters describes in your podcast with you and brant how he went into the store it was all mania and uh and the guy behind was just pissy moany and here we go tom peters says to the guy you know hey no worry I, I get it. You're in it. It's crazy, crazy. Take your time. Do what you got to do. And then he ends up with a hundred dollar gift voucher, which I'm sure he doesn't need, and and an extra plate of something or other. And and what I'm thinking on top of that, and this is the cynic and mentor. Well, that was one of the freaking best marketing moves you could ever do within the restaurant, anyway. Because yeah. look at that. Look at 
Tom Peter speaks about it on your podcast. I'm speaking about it in my podcast. You know, so kindness isn't just about being philanthropic. It also actually is good for business, I think. It, is. it totally is. And this is, you know, you'd like to think that everything is going perfect in an experience. And if you're, if you're really doing the job right, you have to allow your team members to make decisions, to have some, you know, type of accountability. It's tough to talk about empowerment these days, because back in the 80s, I remember emp empowerment really meaning abandonment. You go figure it out. I'll be over in the office if you need me. But if you really do trust your people, you hope that those experiences go fantastic. But the reality is, we deal with human beings and something's going to go squirrely, right? This is when I, as a leader, get to be the hero. I get to be the superhero. And if you go in with the mentality, which I, I used to see managers like physically on their face, as soon as I saw a staff member telling a manager or a leader that something was wrong with this part of the business or table 36 was pissed off, I could physically see their face like, oh, I got to go deal with this. Well, guess what? They're, they're going in guns and blazes and they're going to try and haggle and deal with all that stuff where if you teach leaders to go, this is awesome. This is an opportunity. Whatever's gonna happen, uh, you know, they, they've had a bad experience. Whatever's gonna happen, I guarantee you is gonna be positive. When I finish with them, I'll be able to have a drop mic moment going. It wasn't what they expected, but when I'm finished, they're gonna absolutely fall madly in love with us. If you come with that mentality, you're gonna have people that probably will come back maybe even more so than what they initially intended in the first place. So things are going to screw up and we get that. But if you can teach a leader on how they can solve those issues, you don't necessarily need to give them the hundred dollar certificate, right? Like that was an awesome thing because I think the way Tom explained it is they were in the thick of it. You know, they don't probably get a lot of positive comments like that. Here's a fan. Here's somebody that, that, you know, this leader, this manager just said, man, that felt good. And I, I'm going to go and give them an opportunity to come back and, and be an Uber fan of ours. What a great opportunity. But he didn't need to do that because Tom gets it and he's going to come back. Not all the customers do get it. Uh, but a leader has to step beyond that and go, I'm going to do everything in my power within my grasp while people are here. And by the way, I know I'm talking in a physical environment, but this could be online or on the phone. It doesn't sure. matter. That experiential mentality, if you come with a positive mindset, that things don't happen to you, they happen for you, you're going to be in a much better place. I love the change of preposition. And certainly that guy did not do it to get the publicity. The exactly. intention was just to show gratitude for the specific He's getting it thing. now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's, it reminds me of the, I think it's the Ritz-Carlton, where they give each member $2,000 budget should you need to. And and, and very few people actually end up spending it, but it's, it's just that liberty to do it and that authority, that autonomy within the authority to be able to do it as you need. I love that. So another area I wanted to get into is about transmission. Because leadership, you lead, you do your thing, you perform. And, and I was really quite, I don't wanna say shocked, but certainly stunned by the expression or how you described the colonel from the Air Force, uh, Sonkis, yes. who was just a, a rock star leader. And, and uh, the challenge so often for leaders is to consider how to transmit in a way that allows for this, the next person to do it in their way without completely throwing out with the bathwater, the baby that just was born. So talk to me how you 
how how do you deal with transmission? Because there's an element of education. I'm thinking uh, the educator in front of me would think, but that, I think that's a tough and and fairly uncracked nut in business. Yeah. No, it's a great question, and I'm not sure I think about it um, too much in depth like that. What I you know, I, I appreciated her story and how she took the approach. It reminded me a little bit of what I did when I had moved over to the corporate support center at Hard Rock. And again, I had a team where that entire office operated from 8.30 in the morning to 5.30, the typical sort of structured um, hours for a corporate office. And uh, I, I just stripped that away from my team. I said, you know what? We're on the honor system. You can come and go. You want to stay home and work this week. You want to work from somewhere else. You want to take the day off. I don't care if you're not using your personal time off, it doesn't matter as long as we get the results done. And so what I found when I did that, and I was the only department who did it and I got, I got scolded for it quite a bit, including from my boss that we can't do that. And I just imposed it anyway. What I got was people that worked more hours, worked on the weekends when we had a conference that maybe overlapped on a Saturday, Saturday or Sunday, they came in and they worked. And instead of giving me 40 hours a week, they were giving me 50 or 60. I think, Colonel Sonkis' story is great because she basically said, listen, I'm a hardened war veteran. I am going to be tough. And she is tough. And she's going to hold people accountable. She goes, but beyond that, what do I care? I allowed them to play in a sandbox. I told them where the boundaries were, but then they could do anything they wanted to to get to the end result. And it had to be done with excellence. I'm going to hold you accountable for it, but how you do it is totally up to you. What that allowed, I think, is a, uh, a learning environment. These people sought out mentors, they sought out some education, they sought out information from their peers, or maybe sometimes from somebody that they noticed was doing a particular area or a skill very well. I think that started to happen organically. And instead of, I think people thinking, uh-oh, if I ask anybody, I'm gonna be unmasked that I don't know, that I look stupid, that that I can't do my my day-to-day gig. And so, I think from a transmission standpoint, just her taking a leadership stance that says, listen, I'm not going to micromanage you and it's not going to be, you will do this or else, which was very, you know, that's just the hierarchy of the military or it has been for decades. I think for her to take that off the table and say, we're not going to be like that. I'm going to throw my arm around you. I'm going to love on you. And I care about you as a person. Kindness, the word that you were using earlier, I think is really predicated in her entire leadership style. And what she's doing is she's creating more mini Colonel Sonkisses, kisses, if you will. They're all, she's changing, I think, the military at a very influential base, by the way, in the United States. And now that she's already been promoted and she's working over at the Pentagon, guess what she's probably doing over there? The same thing. So I, I don't know if I thought about it a lot from a transmission standpoint, but it is exactly what I probably did, not even at the office, when I first stepped into Hard Rock to say, I'm going to change all of the training manuals. I'll start with that and then I'll get to video and then I'll get to be in charge of management training and then global training. That's just how it works. And so I think she's one of these people that, that uh, isn't just trying to influence people individually, not that she has this on her radar screen. I think she's changing an entire industry, an entire skill set that's within the military just by her actions alone. I love it. So it does bring up this other point, which is, when your boss is a shit yeah. um, or, or in her case, when there's a history and another general above her that was brought up in the school of hard knocks, not rock. Yes. 
kind yes. of feeling and and or you've got a you you believe in you know the Jim Knight way but your boss is a, a raging a-hole and 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 uh how do you break that line because at the end of the day if you're being treated poorly it, it becomes hard to continue it and when you leave it feels like you're just gonna you know the the things are going to implode around you because the, the boss has got a poor attitude and actually tends to dictate the culture. Yeah, I'm not sure you could get away with it these days. I mean, now, regardless of what the unemployment numbers are, I think if you're an awesome rock star, if you're an, a great employee, I don't need you. I mean, it is absolutely an employee's market right now. If you're worth your weight in salt, you can go work anywhere you want to. You don't have to deal with somebody who is a raging a-hole. And I actually, if you remember mentor, I opened up the book talking about this. I worked in an environment where right. my boss did not develop me, didn't really care not about to be me. mentioned. <laughs> yes. And, and, you know, I just got to the point that I said, I'm just going to do an end run around, not in a, um, against the rule standpoint. I just said in lieu of leadership, I've got to figure out a way to lead. And so I knew that this person wasn't going to be working shifts other than Monday through Friday during the day. Okay. So if you put me on nights and weekends and the crappy shifts and assign me or don't assign me anything, guess what? I'm going to make the best of that. And what happens is exactly what happened. I outlived the guy. The guy goes on to do something else. And I stayed there for 21 years in a very cool, influential position. And I think Colonel Sankis, now General Sankis, same thing. I think regardless of who the ultimate boss is, unless you're doing something that would be counter to the company values or some very specific policy, they're usually just holding you accountable for the most part on the end result. Unless they tell you, you have to do it this way. I think you have a little bit of some flexibility. I, I think that's what I've seen at least in today's business. So, you know, it makes it tougher. If somebody's in my way, they're an obstacle, but I don't need anybody's permission to be awesome and be kind and be human and, and humble to the people that I'm working with when I'm on a shift and there's nobody else around. When I'm there, they see me as the culture. They see me as the brand more than that individual because they're probably not around as much. So I don't want to stomp on all the leaders out there, but it just does amaze me that there are still people out there who think like this, who are thinking I can, I can muscle the result and make things happen by telling people what to do and you will do it or else this is going to happen to you. It just blows my mind that that exists, but it does. And there's some industries that it still is, it, you know, is prevalent. prevalent. Go one step down. If you're really good and you think at some point this person's going to be gone or they're going to get promoted or they'll be a chairman or they're going to leave. But at the very least, the majority of my time on this planet is going to be at work. I'm going to have an awesome time. I will surround myself and create an insulated bubble that says my culture is going to rock because of my leadership on this shift. And then you just do one more and one more and one more. Next thing you know, you have an awesome career and people respected you because of it. Well, I also think you surely will respect yourself. You look in the mirror, you see, you like what you see, not like a, I'm, you know, egotistical maniac, but just you're good with what you are. Right. Uh, I, I enjoy that. I think that's a, a very igniting way to talk about it. You, you use a lot of references to fire in your book, fire and flame and energy that you have. It's, uh, it's infectious. I want to talk to about one last thing because it's, yeah. it's also a regular struggle, which is you talk about the hustle muscle. And, and so 
I was just noticing somewhere that there was that last year, apparently, there was a 41% voluntary resignation across corporate America. Yeah. So they call it the great resignation. I mean, holy Toledo, you're, it's your point that it's an employee market. They, they actually presumably are easily finding places, but they certainly won't be tolerating bad places. That's right. So I think that's yeah. what that comes down to. But the, the hustle muscle and put it in, in, a, in a way, if, I, if you're an immigrant, you come, you hustle because you're hungry, because you want the best for your kids. And then your kids grow up and then they get this great education. And for some reason, the hustle disappears. Yeah. So if you have it, that's fine. But how, well, first of all, how do you keep it? And two, how do you transmit it? Yeah. So first off, that term, the hustle muscle, isn't mine. Uh, it's a very good friend of mine, Kat Cole, um, who is a rock star. Her star rises every single day. And she really coined that phrase, or at least that's the first time that I had heard it. And I, I put it in the book because I think it it really did specify exactly what I was trying to impart when I'm talking about leaders who have got to get better at critical decision-making and becoming heart-centered and engaging in mentorship and developing this mindset that, you know, you, you, things aren't happening to you. Like we talked about before they're happening for you. So that, that mentality of an unparalleled work ethic is what I think about when it comes to the hustle muscle. So in that example of an immigrant that comes in, I think what's going to happen with that immigrant's family is that they'll all have that hustle muscle because it's ingrained in them. Again, it's learned behavior. So they're getting it from their parents. They're getting it early on. You'd like to think in their education with their friends, with the playground, with religion or lack of religion, whatever it is, by the time they actually go do look for a job or look for a gig, they don't just have, um, the I hope something is handed to me mentality. They don't just have, although there's nothing wrong with that. I love people who start businesses. I am a startup entrepreneur type of guy now, but to get there, you've got to have that, that hustle muscle. You've got to have the work ethic that just is going to outperform everybody else. And I use several examples, including Kobe Bryant, the great basketball star, where I talk about he out hustled everybody. You're, you're not going to ever outwork him. So he gets to the level of uh, that he was, because of that mentality, there's a lot of other things as well, natural talent, of course. But in general, I think people that have this mindset is, I want to work. I know that that's good for the soul. It's good for my hands. And ultimately, it's going to get me to great places. Case in point, you're talking about this great, um, you know, the, the, the what did you call it? The great, um, the great resignation. Uh, resignation, the great resignation. Yeah. After the pandemic, right, where people were laid off, or they were furloughed, or or some of them were just put on, you know, for, for temporary, we thought they were coming back, but they're not. Take that aside. The fact that at least in the United States, where unemployment checks were doled out like crazy, where people, there are people that absolutely needed it, and there are others that really didn't need it at all, but they found out that you can make a little bit more money off the government than actually going back and working a, a good day's wage. And I'll tell you right now, in our book marketing company that we have, we have somebody who joined us about four or five months ago who could have easily stayed home and made more money off of unemployment, but thought by the time people start to figure out it's time to go back and get a job, I'm already going to be ensconced in a business that I love and I won't have to fight so hard because it is going to change at some point. I don't know what it is. It might be a year down the road. And this is somebody that I admire because I look at that and go, she didn't need to do it. She chose to do it. 
and she works like a crazy person. Like right now, she's working 60, 70 hours. I mean, it is, is basically doing two person, two people's jobs. And so she's rewarded because of it. She has hustle muscle. These are people that I love, trust, admire, respect. It really does fly in the face when I see people who are taking advantage of the handouts, which are severely needed by some people around the world, number one and two, that just have this expectation that stuff's going to be handed to them. And I know you and I are at an age where it's a little bit different. My grandparents, my parents, even I, we had to work to get to where we are. There are people today that just expect something a little bit different. And, you know, let, let's let's start some cool businesses in the country. Yes, but not everybody's going to be able to do that. We need people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and say, I'm going to be a self-made person and, and stuff is going to come out of it. And I'm going to impart that to people that I can influence. And it might start with my family. It might ultimately be my community. You can actually change the world just based off of that one person's behavior. Colonel Sonkis is one of these people who does that. Kobe Bryant was like that. I'd like to think every once in a while, I get a chance to play in that space, regardless of uh, whatever industry I'm in front of at that point. Well, you have an infectious energy. Uh, I, I like to say, and I, I certainly did when in my time, hire for attitude over competency. Yep. So, yeah. hey, Jim, how can, uh, I love the work you did uh, with for my book, uh, you lead with Bookstar PR. We didn't even get a chance to talk about that. We probably have another four and a half hours of conversation we could go on. However, yeah. time is what it is. How can someone track you down, follow you, uh, see what you're doing, get your books? Of course, what's up? Well, I appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much, first off, for having me on the show. This is, this is a great honor. And I see some of the great people that you've had on before. So I'm, I'm just absolutely tickled. Um, all roads probably lead to my website. It's really easy. My last name is Knight. So it's nightspeaker.com. If you go there, you can see all the crazy things. And there's video clips and different topics I speak about in my books and all that. Nightspeaker.com. You can see whatever you want. But Honestly, this has been a real joy and uh, just great getting to know you more. And I look forward to us spending a little bit more time together. One day we're going to meet in real life. <laughs> Mark my words. Going to happen. Yeah. Well, I've got I've taken a screen capture so that so and I'll put that I'll put it on your uh, website when um, when I've got the uh, um, the blog post coming up. Thanks uh, very much, Jim. Uh, talk to you soon, man. Sounds great. Rock on. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. arms
The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.